And I hope you'll listen carefully. Uh, I invite you to turn back into your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Uh, And if you don't have your Bible, I invite you to grab the one in front of you, because I want you to look carefully at the passage this morning. And I want you to listen carefully, too, because we are entering into this uh, part 28 of our study of Mark's gospel in in what I think is one of the most important chapters in the uh, whole gospel, as I've been reading and studying it throughout the past several days. Uh, This chapter is important because it is also difficult. This chapter is what is also known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the sermon that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives to his apostles regarding a lot of end times events. Events that will happen at the end of all things. Things that will happen at the end of the world, so to speak. And I think the difficulty arises in how to interpret and apply a sermon such as this. Well, I want you to listen because there is some really good news in this sermon, as there always is in Jesus' words, but especially in this one. Because I think we are often pre-sort of conditioned or presupposed or predisposed, so to speak, to make passages like this, end times passages, to mean something that they were not originally intended to mean. And by that I mean we want them to be sort of like fortune-telling passages. Almost like Jesus is taking out the tarot cards and telling us uh, future events and how we can plan for the future by telling us exactly what the future is going to hold and and where things are going to happen next and who is going to do it and, and, and all those certain details. We want... Chapters like this one and passages in Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation and such. We want them to be sort of like Jesus is pulling back the curtain and and letting us peek inside the future. So that we can know, we can know something about it. And to a certain degree he does do that. I'm not denying that there's uh, certain uh, parts of scripture that exist to uh, cue us in onto future events. Events that have even yet not happened in our lifetimes. That is certainly true. But remember who Jesus is talking to. Remember the context of the sermon in which Jesus gives it. He's teaching his apostles He's teaching his very chosen dozen men. And he's giving this sermon here throughout Mark 13 to boost their confidence, their courage, their resolve in what he knew would happen in the coming days, months, and years. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and then the world turned upside down by the fact and the assertion and the message That this Jesus of Nazareth that you guys killed on the cross. Yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He is God. The apostles were everywhere asserting this. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew that in in order to have courage and resolve for those coming days and years when they would be persecuted for that message. He needed to assure them to watch and to pray. I think this is the prevailing message. Behind any passage of scripture that you open to that deals with apocalyptic events, with end times things. The prevailing message of all of them, the overarching message of those parts of scripture is not to make us predictors of the future. is to make us faithful in the present. 
Is to make us faithful right here, right now, where we are. In the life that we are living right now. In order to live faithfully right now, Jesus gives us these passages to assure us. To free us to be faithful. That's what I want to explore here. Through this sermon. And if Hopefully you're not like a type A person and you have to have an outline. Um, because I don't have necessarily point one, two, three. I just want to walk through this sermon. I want to show this to you. Because to me it's startling. And to me it's also incredibly encouraging what Jesus does here. Remember, look at verse 1. 13 verse 1. He says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So you have to remember, this is taking place on the same day from all the way back in chapter 11 verse 27. The same day that where Jesus has been questioned by group after group after group of religious elites. They come to him questioning his authority and all these certain things. It's the third day of Holy Week. He's been answering these questions. He's been sort of laying the smack down, so to speak, on all of these other religious groups. And now he's also uh, taken time out to admonish his apostles in matters of true religion. And now they're exiting the temple... And one of his apostles, unnamed apostle, remarks, look at the structure. Look at that building. Look at how marvelous it looks. Look at how amazing the stones are. And indeed, this is an untrue. This is the second iteration of the temple that was refurbished by Herod in the early part of the first century. And indeed, these stones that he is remarking about were indeed huge. And in fact, ancient historian Josephus said that they were beyond belief. The structure itself of the temple was marvelous. It was incredible. It was a marvel to look at. Much like we would look at any sort of modern wonder piece of architecture, such as what the apostles are doing here. They're marveling at the architecture and the structure. But Jesus' response to them is so important. Look at what he does. He points them to another direction. Look at verse 2. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus is making a startling statement. You see this structure? It's going to be nothing but ruins. It's going to be rubble. You see, Jesus didn't want his followers enamored by this structure only of the temple. He didn't want them captivated by just the architecture, by just the outside appearance of religion. He wanted them enamored and captivated and captured in the very heart of their hearts by the Savior within the temple. The one in whom they were supposed to be worshiping. Such as what he's been doing the whole time when he's cleansing the temple and reorienting the apostles' minds about uh, about what true religion looks like. So you see here, by what Jesus is doing... And by what Jesus has been doing the day in the hours previous to this moment, he's been exposing the, the, the hypocrisy, the fakeness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember at, uh, at the end of chapter um, 12, remember where it talks about uh, verse 38 and through 40, where it talks about how they, they just wanted to have the greetings and they wanted to be seen. They, wanted, they were doing things, as it says, for a pretense. He's been saying that, and now he's actually predicting that the very emblem, the very symbol, the very structure of their fake religion is going to be torn down. It's going to be reduced to nothing. 
It's all for a show, and Jesus is going to bring the house down, so to speak. And so he seizes this opportunity to prophesy about the complete destruction of this religious facade. The symbol of Jewish failure, of the corruption that was going on in the temple, is going to be brought down. It's going to crumble. Again, verse 2, not one stone shall be left. This is obviously... Incredibly nerve-wracking for the apostles. Can you imagine their faces when Jesus says this? He's been prophesying about his death. Predicting the fact that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be strung up and die. And not only that, that one of his followers is going to betray him. And now he's, not only has he done that, and not only has he just recently denounced all of the religious elite of the day, the ones who were revered in Jewish society. Now he has gone a step further and just predicted the ruin. Of the center of Jewish life. The temple. Imagine their faces. What they were thinking. What was going through their minds now. Such as why Peter, James, John and Andrew were like we need to figure out more. We need to know what's going on. And so verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So they've gone out of the, the city proper so to speak of Jerusalem. And they're on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. Overlooking the temple. It says, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Tell us what's going to happen, Jesus. Master, teacher, how will we know when all of this stuff, this destruction that you're talking about, how will we know when that's going to take place? Give us the scoop. They want the inside scoop on this prophecy that Jesus is talking about. You know, I'll tell you, probably more than any other question a pastor has ever received, and I can vouch for this because I asked my dad this question, is (laughs) those questions that deal with end times things, especially relating to current events. How does this relate to uh, end times things? Does this event, is this in the scripture somewhere? How do we know that we are in the end times? Is this part of end times events? And all those questions and so on. And I'm, I'm not saying that those are bad questions. I think it's really good that we are sensitive towards the Lord's coming. We are sensitive so much for the fact that we are looking for it. But I think... In another sense, these questions also just reveal, questions about the end time reveal exactly how much we are like the apostles. Give us the scoop. Can we know? Is there something that we can figure out? We are just like them. We want inside information on the end times. And what's going to happen? And where? And when? And by whom? We want to figure it out. And like The apostles, little did they know that when they asked Jesus those questions, he would launch into this sermon for 30 odd verses about the end times. The Olivet Discourse, as we've already remarked. A sermon, by the way, if you read it, does not specifically answer their question. It doesn't explicitly say, this is what you can look for. Actually, it gives them a better answer. It's an answer for them, and it's an answer for us too. Because he does answer their question, but not in the way that they imagined. Because look back at verse 2. I want you to notice this. The prophecy in verse 2, and actually the one that fills the rest of the sermon from verse 5 through the end of the chapter, is, I'll call it this, it's multi-layered prophecy. 
It's a prophecy that has many levels to it. It's many layers to it, you might say. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do throughout this discourse. He is going to alternate between immediate events that he's prophesying about and future events that, yes, haven't even happened in our lifetime. And he's putting them back to back. Events that will be centuries, millennia apart. He's putting them back to back within the narrative. So that I think to show that no one can really figure this out. Take verse 2, for example. Look at verse 2 again, where he says, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Remember, they have just walked out of the temple. They've just exited that structure. And this one unnamed apostle has remarked about the marvelousness of the temple. And Jesus comments again, and he uses that same word, buildings, This building is not going to withstand. There is a clear reference. Layer one, so to speak, of this prophecy. Layer one, of course, is a clear reference to what would happen just a few decades from this very moment. When Roman Emperor Titus would ransack Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's, of course, what Jesus is referring to. That when Titus comes and sieges Rome, he is not going to leave Jerusalem as it stands. And the temple specifically would be left to nothing but rubble. So obviously there's a clear indicator that Jesus knew that that event would happen in just a few short days. Or excuse me, a few short decades. There's also though another layer to this prophecy. That I actually think points to what would happen in just a few short days from this moment. Namely, Jesus' death on the cross. Because you see, along with that reference to Titus ransacking Jerusalem a few decades from now. He is also talking about when he would be crucified and lifted up. And he would be ruined for the sake of all sinners on a cross. That he himself, the one who has come to be the wherein every man dwells, the sort so to speak, God's temple on earth, he would be destroyed by the cross, and he would also destroy this temple by his death. No longer would there be a temple structure that would segregate and separate people. In fact. Everyone would be invited into the innermost court of the temple, the Holy of Holies, by grace through faith. After a few short days, they would, everyone would have access after his death. That's why, by the way, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when you're reading the crucifixion passages, they always mention that verse. Where the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Why? Because Jesus is ruining the old dispensation of sacrificial ritual religion by saying that everyone, regardless of nationality, creed, anything, can come into the very innermost parts of the sanctuary just by faith. Everyone has access now. Because Jesus has destroyed the old ways of religion. He tore that veil in two. So you see, there's multiple things happening with Jesus' words. And this happens throughout the rest of this sermon. He's referencing immediate events and future events. Look at another example. Look at verse 24. Look at what it says here. But in those days, Jesus says, 
After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And that he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds and from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. These verses, of course, are clearly suggestive of events that have not happened even in our lifetimes. These verses are clearly indicative of that day, the day that we are still, yes, looking forward to when the Son of Man will return, not as a baby, but as a violent, rigorous warrior on a horse coming and will claim his church for his very own. That's what we look forward to. The Son of Man coming in the clouds. This is what these verses talk about. But then look at verse 28. Right afterwards, he says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. You notice there in verse 30, where he comments that this generation will see these things take place. Uh, He is obviously, in my mind, referencing again that day that he has just predicted the destruction and ruin of the temple. The destruction and ruin of his body as well. It's going to happen in a few short days and a few short decades from now. These events will take place. And so you see there's future and immediate events happening right back to back in the same narrative that Jesus is preaching. Look actually further. I want to point this out to you. Look at verse 5. At the beginning of Jesus' initial words of warning to his apostles. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and I will, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. But the end, or excuse me, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of the sorrows. These, of course, are clear indicators of, yes, perhaps things we are experiencing now and things that are not even yet in our lifetime. He's predicting those wars and rumors of wars when there's just chaos surrounding our lives. Things we hear of, things we are made aware of. Tribulation and turmoil and unrest and trouble that surrounds our life. He's indicating to them that, yes, that is going to wax worse and worse. But notice verse 9. Watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated 
by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now these verses clearly are indicative are suggestive of what would occur in the apostles' lives just a few short months, weeks, months, and years from this moment. Just read the book of Acts. When he's talking about councils and synagogues and being beaten and being brought to the point of almost death. Yes, of course, he's talking about the events of Acts. The events that these very apostles, who are staring like deers in the headlights into Jesus' face here, will one day face. That for his sake and his name, they will be betrayed and they will be beaten and they will be brought to the brink of the end of their own lives. Think as Jesus is speaking. The the horrified looks on the apostles' faces. (laughs) The tribulations that Jesus is exposing that would come about in their lives. Tribulations and trials, by the way, that are only about to come about in their lives because of their devotion to Jesus. Did you notice that in these verses? That you who are going out in my name to preach the gospel, these are the results of that devotion, of that allegiance. You will be hated. You will be mocked. You will suffer these things. But do not be afraid. Similarly, I think there is much that we can be overwhelmed by. Just as these apostles were no doubt horrified by the words that are coming out of their teacher's mouth. We can no doubt also be stressed and overwhelmed and just just completely uh, flummoxed by the words that we're reading. These words of warning. So why does Jesus do this? Why does he put future and immediate events back to back? Does he want to confuse us? Does he want us to be questioning and confounded? No. Uh, If you consider the entire sermon that Jesus gives, I think there's two really specific reasons why Jesus does this in this sermon. First of all, these Bad times, so to speak, are not bad news. These bad times are not bad news. Jesus details over and over again in this sermon some really troubling, bad events. Things that would happen to his followers that don't sound like what we would expect of those who are following the master, the king. Events that I would dare say make the sort of hairs in the back of our neck stand on end. Look at, again, look at verse 7 and 8. Wars, rumors of wars, and, but do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. He talks about earthquakes and famines and troubles, and then he says that these are only the beginnings of the sorrows. That when you hear these things, it's bad, but it's not even as bad as it can get. These are only the beginnings of the travail, of the trouble that's going to come about in this world. And then look at, look at verse 19. He says, in those days, talking about future events, there will be tribulation. And listen to this, how he describes it. Such as has not been seen, or excuse me, not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Tribulation that is so unprecedented, this entire created order has never witnessed the type of tribulation that's going to come about. Scary stuff. Bad times. And he is saying again that this is not even bad news. 
It's not bad news for you who know who is controlling these times. These troubles that come about are not to be feared or resisted. Rather, what Jesus' point is throughout this sermon is that these bad times, yes, as bad as they are, to be accepted as the Lord's signals and symbols of His imminent return. That He is coming back. We know that and believe that. And as we see things happening all around us that trouble us and disturb us, that should almost get us excited. Not because we're masochists, but because we know who is ruling over the times. The one who is ruling over all of this, he is coming back to claim us as his own. These troubles and tribulations and trials are the very discernible times that God is on the move. He's moving. He's working. He is working behind the scenes just as he always has been. That all this chaos that we see, that's just the prelude to the rescue to come. It's the prelude to the rescue that Jesus will finally, once and for all, bring us back with him together. So therefore, the worse that things get, the more hopeful we can be. Why? Because we know the one who is ruling over these times. And that sounds really easy. That sounds really easy to just spout off. Just, you know, that's the worse things get, the more hopeful you can be. But this is the assurance that Jesus is giving us. This is what he's trying to do throughout this sermon. That nothing we are seeing right now, nothing we are witnessing, all of the, uh, the events and the scandal and the stress and the anxiety and the worries that we see on our news feeds and in the newspapers, if you still read those, wherever you get your news... Your stories, when you see those things that stress you out, guess what? God is not surprised by any of it. He's not caught off guard. He is not wringing his hands, getting white knuckles over the fact that this pandemic has shut down U.S. economy. He is not getting worried when churches close their doors. He is the one who is ruling over every single event. He is not surprised. He is not caught off guard. God is not startled by anything that's happening right now. Therefore, these bad times are actually good news because we know the one who is Lord and sovereign over them all. These bad times are not bad news. Number two, these bad times are not for us to judge. I love how he says this here. Look at verse 32. He's talking about. He's been referencing all this trouble. And turmoil and tribulation. Things that are going to come about. In this world. And then look at what he says. But of that day and hour. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Nor the sun. But only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. You don't know when the time is. Jesus was very clear that despite all of these prophecies of future events, things that have and have not happened, things that have already been fulfilled, and things that, yes, haven't even yet been fulfilled in our lifetimes... Things that really stir up our interest. He is saying, no one knows when all these things are going to be fulfilled. No one knows. No one can foresee when all of these things kind of fit together. 
And yet, that has not stopped humans throughout the course of entire history from trying to predict and, quote, figure out when the Son of Man is actually coming. As if it's some sort of puzzle or or Bible code that we need to solve to figure out when Jesus is actually returning. By the way, it's not. There's no, like, secret code that you can put together. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus was trying to encourage by these words. So, are we living in the time and the ages of the end times when all these things will be fulfilled? I don't know. That's not a cop-out answer. Yeah, I think we are in the end times. Are we in the end times of the end times? I truly do not know. No one knows. That's not a cop-out. That's reading what Jesus says. No one knows when these times will be. No one knows them. And anyone who pretends to know exactly when all of these things are going to take place and how and when and by whom, they are deceiving you. They are lying to you. Countless people have been lied to by men who, who would uh, swindle and steal would-be believers' faith by pretending they know when these things will be. This is why he's talking about in verses 21 and 22. Look at those. That if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He means they're even the church, even would-be believers. I am saddened by those who would have their faith be stolen. By teachers who want to pretend like they know something that they don't. You may remember this. This was before me. You might remember this name, Edgar Wisenant. Do you know who he is? He was a former NASA engineer and Bible student who infamously wrote, and it, the title says it all, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. We're still here. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. He wrote this book and what it infamously predicted that the rapture was going to be in September 1988. He had it down to a few short days during Rosh Hashanah. And then that passed. It came and went. And then he updated his prediction again. And so he got it wrong. And it wasn't September 1980. It's actually October 1988. And that came and went, obviously. And he said in one newspaper article, The evidence is all over the place that is going to be in a few weeks anyways. (laughs) Stubbornly resolved to his prediction of the end times. I don't mean to disparage this man or what he predicted. I I mean to disparage what he predicted. (laughs) I don't mean to disparage his faith. It's sad to me, though, that this would be his legacy. A prediction of the end times. And for what? Not to be outdone, another guy, Harold Camping. Do you remember him? Evangelist. He was a president of the family radio. And he predicted that Jesus' second coming, he actually predicted it twice. He said in 1994 that he was surely coming back. And then in 2011, he predicted the same thing. Men who are caught up with trying to figure out when this will be. You want a a tragically funny read? Go on Wikipedia and look up the article, Predictions and Claims for the Second Coming of Christ. I I did that. (laughs) 
um, it's kind of tragically funny. Because it's not just these two guys. There's a long list of people dating back to the very beginnings of human history who have predicted when all of these things will take place. And I say it's tragic because I think of all of the lives of faith of the church, as Jesus says here, of the elect, of would-be believers who were disrupted and devastated and disturbed by not only these predictions, but the false reality that when these predictions didn't actually take place. Think of young Christian lives who put their faith in Jesus and then they hear this news and then it doesn't happen. Causing them to question what they believe. I'm not saying that they're false Christs. But I'm saying that they screwed up. They got people's eyes off of the mark. By trying to pretend that they had certain knowledge that other people don't. Why do we do this? Why are we obsessed with this? Well, I think there's two reasons why we are obsessed with this idea. I think we are possessed with this idea of having top secret knowledge. We just like that as human beings. I think it's just a human thing. We like to know that we have more information than someone else. Information envy. I know something you don't, but I can't tell you. This is the whole reason, by the way, that the celebrity gossip world exists. So you can know something else that someone else doesn't know. You can know something about who divorced who and who is mad at this Instagram comment by this person. It's all because you can know something that someone else doesn't know. Information envy, so to speak. And I think it's the same with end times predictions. Not that it's not as serious as that. But they create this sense of we need to know. And that this person who is telling us this knows something that we don't. They've been given some sort of word from on high. And they're dogmatic about all these assumptions regarding the end times and the end of all things. As if they've unlocked the Bible code. And Jesus has flat out said, no one knows. This is not for them to decide. It's not for them to discern. No one knows when this time is. Only the Father, he says. There's nothing to be unlocked. We do it for information envy. But I also think we do it because we're prideful. I think we just... There's a certain level of pride and and self-importance in thinking that our generation's problems will be the ones to do in the universe. You can read books throughout the course of Christian history... Almost every generation thought that the end times was going to be in their day. Men from all across the spectrum of Christian theology who were writing, men who were well-renowned and men I would recommend, have even predicted the same things. Not like the ones I referenced, but they were adamantly sure that because of the state of their world, that the end time was near. So thinking that the world, how could it get any worse? That is nothing new. People were thinking that the world was so bad and then World War I happened. People were thinking that that was really bad. Surely the Lord is coming back and then the World War II happened. It's been like that through every generation. Which isn't to say that it couldn't be now, but we don't know that. 
And I think that that's... I don't mean this to be reductive, but it doesn't matter. That's not what Jesus is trying to do through this sermon. He's trying to show us something better. I love... I love The Lord of the Rings. The series of books written by John Ronald Rule Tolkien. You might know them or be familiar with them. They were turned into movies famously in the early 2000s. I know a lot about them because I've watched them several times. And I've read the books several times. Um, But I love The Lord of the Rings and what they mean. Because what Tolkien was trying to do in writing these fairy tales was not to write something that was allegorical. You can read about this. He, he is very adamant about the fact that he's not writing an allegory where this thing stands in for this thing. He's writing something that's applicable. It's something that can apply to our times, and therefore it's more timeless. It can, it, you can read it in the 1980s, and you can read it now in the 2020s, and will have the same applicability. But what he does is he crafts the story... Of course, about this magical ring and fairy tales, and it's very mythological, but it's incredibly riveting. And he writes it in such a way that speaks to the human soul, I would say, such to the point where I have to read you this passage. Because it stands out to me in such a way that grips me every time I read it. It happens when our young protagonist, his name is Frodo Baggins, and he's been told about what he has to do. To destroy this very evil source of power. This one ring to rule them all, right? And he's sitting there. And he's talking to his friend, the wizard Gandalf. And he says this. I wish it need not have happened in my time. Doesn't that sound like us? I wish this didn't happen now. Why did COVID-19 have to happen in my lifetime? Why did it have to happen now? We've been saying this for a long time. Why did the Cold War have to happen in my lifetime? And people before that were saying, why did World War II have to happen in my lifetime? Such is why I think this is so riveting to me and so stunning. But I love Frodo's friend's answer, Gandalf. He says this, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. We don't have to decide when the times are. Whether we're in the end times or when we're not in the end times. All we have to decide is what we are going to do with the time that we're in right now. What are you going to do? These words just ring loud and true. At least for me. I hope they do for you too. But they show Jesus' point. You are not the makers of the times. And you are not the keepers of the times. You are the watchers of the times. Look again. Look at verse 32. But of that day... That coming day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Take heed and watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, 
lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. We are those who've been chiefly charged with watching the times, not trying to figure them out, not trying to keep, uh, not trying to keep them or, or make them something different, but staying alert in them, staying active in them about our errand, which is what is to watch and pray and work. Watch for the Lord's coming. Pray for the Lord's coming. And work right now as his representatives. Did you notice that parable? Jesus is the master who goes off into a far country. Who has left authority to us. His representatives here and now. Who are given authority over the door. The door to the kingdom. The door of faith. And are we going to be urgently ushering people through that door? Or are we going to be caught sleeping? See, the message here is an urgent one. We don't know when he's coming back. And that is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because now, what? He could come back at any moment. Are you urgently working towards that moment? This is Jesus' charge to his apostles and to us. Because we've been living in the aftermath of this sermon ever since it was spoken. And the charge for us is still the same. Watch and pray. Do not worry about signs and symbols and what does this mean? And could this be the mark of the beast or could it not? Is, is this the ending? Watch and pray. Still your soul and be pray. It is not your duty to change or decide the times. Our duty and calling is to watch and pray. Like I said at the beginning, the overarching meaning of apocalyptic scripture is to not make us predictors of the future, but to make us faithful in the present. This is what Jesus is doing through this sermon. He's saying like Gandalf. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. All you have to worry about is what type of representative you're going to be in these times. The type of life that you're going to live in these times. Are you going to live it in fear, wringing your hands about what could be and what might happen? Are you going to live it in faith, working to show One and all. This teacher. He's the king. He's the master. He's the Lord. And he's coming back. Are you living in fear or faith? Let us pray.